It is so good to be able to come to a worship service that's done in truth and in spirit. Aren't you thankful that you can be here tonight? Aren't you thankful for the opportunity that has been given to us? And may we always have the eagerness and enthusiasm of mind to avail ourselves of those times like this one. It's so good to see each and every person assembled and gathered here, our elders and yea, all of us, as we're a part of this peeping church of Christ, lift high the joy, the genuine joy that's ours. In fact, tonight, if I could just begin with at least a, a brief announcement, you probably remember this morning our ladies, in fact, in, in splendid number, met for a few moments after the morning service, and they're going to begin. Denise is going to lead a, a series of studies every other week or so, and some books were made available. And Denise asked me to make an announcement that if you didn't get a book, We've ordered some more. They should be here by Wednesday. But if you would like a copy, at least, of those pages, representative of Chapter 1, so you can go ahead and get a head start reading if you just can't wait. She's going to have some copies, and we'll pass those out as you exit the auditorium after the service tonight. As you look forward to that at 1.30 this coming Saturday, 1.30 here at the building, the particular study will be using that book that's entitled, My Sister's Keeper. Somewhat reminiscent, of course, of that statement of my brother's keeper in Genesis chapter 4. And of course, on that occasion, Cain asked it, and Cain was in the wrong. But this book is going to encourage those lovely attributes of Christian ladies, and in fact, many things that many of us certainly could learn from, at least in principle. So I know that you're looking forward to that with great enthusiasm. Tonight's lesson that I've entitled is Humbleness of Mind, and you probably noticed that's the very phrase the Holy Spirit used as He directed Paul in Colossians 3, verse number 12. And so tonight, as you and I seek to at least think for a moment about that, these introductory thoughts will not only form the background of that impression, but yet another passage to which we will turn during the course of the lesson tonight. Every one of us know very well there's something rather innate and special about the attribute of humility. Isn't it true that one of the first impressions you gain of someone may well closely remark as to whether or not that person is humble? If a person almost instantly gives this attribute of being meek and lowly, not arrogant, and yet interested clearly in the well-being of others, you're drawn seemingly naturally to a person like that. But on the other hand, if almost at initial reflection a person appears to be prideful, arrogant, and selfish, and certainly not humble, you're seemingly repulsed by that kind of person. They're just not naturally one that you often like to be around. Aren't you then amazed as we reflect on this statement in verse 12 again? Colossians 3 verse 12 after listing in several previous verses things that are to be avoided, things that are to be eliminated, he now comes to some things that are to be added. Put on therefore as the elect of God, so the elect are the Christians. Those precious souls in ancient Colossae were told, here are some things you make sure to add in rapid order and in deep and profound fashion. As the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, that literally means an attribute of compassion. You have a concern for the well-being of other people. He goes on to say kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. 
you notice that this humbleness of mind is a rather notable part of those things that a person is to seek. I suppose that there's a tendency to grow up in a way that would be a bit on the selfish side if our parents aren't careful to help make sure that's kept at bay. We want food when we're hungry. We like to engage in those things that are pleasing to our fleshly desire, and yet hopefully in time we learn in humility to appreciate we don't always get our way. And so it is on this occasion. You notice that there's an example from the life of our Master. Isn't it true? You and I are told very carefully, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, to quote Philippians 2 verse 5. Colossians 1.27 said... Christ in you, the hope of glory. Galatians 4, verse 19, highlighted, Paul said, I travail until Christ be formed in you. That's just a sampling of three passages. You and I are to be the exemplars, if you please, behaving like Christ would. So how did he behave? When it came to humility, I suppose there is no matter, no example, no episode of his life grander and greater than the one that took place in the spring of A.D. 30, just a few hours before he was crucified. It may be that you and I ought never forget that on the occasion in John chapter 13, the following reality occurred. In John 13, of course, was the scene of the Passover celebration. The, of course, the last one before he died. This was the very one at which he was put to death. And you notice in verse number 2 it says, John 13, And supper having ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper, and laid aside his garments, and took a towel, and girded himself. After that he poureth water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with a the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do now thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith unto him, He that is washed needeth not, save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him, therefore he said, You're not all clean. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye ought also to wash one another's feet." For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. That's the reading of John 13, verses 2 to 17. 
It's a scene upon which we no doubt have often reflected. I brought this hopefully object illustration tonight. We aren't literally going to wash one another's feet, but I hope as you and I think about something like a tile and something like a basin, that you and I might etch in our memory bank the reality of what Jesus the Christ did on that fateful evening. And you did notice, of course, that Jesus said, as you have seen me do this, you should do this. The principle behind this which the Master was here teaching was to be a matter always descriptive of His people. And so what was it? Humbleness of mind was the title of the lesson, and why don't we at least set the background for what we've just read? It was that Passover observance. Jesus had met with His apostles. They had met in that upper room, and as they celebrated that Passover feast, during the course of which Jesus had basically made institution of that which we call the Lord's Supper. He took the bread, He took the fruit of the vine, and He instituted in their heart this lasting memorial of Him. The unleavened bread representative of His body. The fruit of the vine representative of His blood. And He thus so often said, This do ye as often as ye take it in remembrance of Me. We are so common in that we are true to do that. We would never let a worship service on the Lord's Day pass without observing that. It's that critical. It's that vital. It's that necessary and that meaningful. But you notice something else He did at the same kind of timing. He washed their feet. Now before we're done tonight, we're going to ask this question, and many have asked it through the ages. Did Jesus institute foot washing then as a part of worship? Is that what He intended? Clearly you and I would agree if He did, you and I have been failing to worship Him as He gave instruction. But if He didn't teach that, what was the purpose of this? It might be you've often heard someone ask, well, is foot washing then a reasonable and required part of a worship service? Tonight, as you and I look at that matter and some others, you might notice what the Lord did. There came a time in verse number 4 when He rose from supper. He girded Himself with a garment, that particular tile that He was going to use, and He took a basin, put water within it, and proceeded one by one to these apostles. He was washing their feet. And as He did that, He of course comes to Peter, and they have a bit of conversation. And finally, He wins over Peter, and Peter remarks, it seems with exuberance, Oh Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Peter seemingly sensed, that what was going on was not merely removing dirt from, from feet. It was a deeper, more profound thing than that. You'll notice in verse number 11, as the Lord made reference to the fact that all of them were clean but one, clearly that tells us He wasn't just talking about dirt on feet. Judas was the one He had in mind, and Judas had already made plans for the betrayal. And Judas was soon to rapidly leave the proceedings and make the final arrangements. Amazing, isn't it, then, that verse 12 says, After he had washed their feet, he then asked them this leading question, Know ye what I have done to you? Isn't that an interesting question? Surely they knew he just washed their feet. We can already gain a sense what the Lord had just done. It had a deeper and more profound appreciation than merely the removal of dirt from feet. 
because he asked them, do you know what I've just done? Because he used that in the verses that follow. And he said, verse 14, If I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye ought also to wash one another's feet. I hope perhaps in the days that are ahead in your life, whenever you see a basin and whenever you see perhaps pan like I've brought as an illustration, maybe you can think back on the Lord's unforgettable lesson of humbleness of mind, the characteristics that went with it. And so let's develop this a bit more thoroughly. As we proceed to the next slide, a picture. Sometimes we often utilize a picture and as much as it's helpful to make sure that we can etch in our heart what it is that we're reading. On this occasion, you probably would easily imagine that the very scene, of course, in the upper room probably looked different than that. That's got trees in the background and other things. I'm not a purporting that this is exactly what it looked like, but my thought was at least the impression seems reasonable. Jesus, humbling Himself in lowliness of heart and mind to stoop to the reality of what a servant should do and wash the feet of another. Surely that lesson did not go unnoticed by those apostles that were there gathered. And I wonder if it was often a very meaningful thing as they contemplated it. Here again is a more modern day picture, and many you know of our present day still wrestle with to what degree should we make foot washing a religious service. Let's continue our discussion. You'll notice at the top of that slide, let's make some additional notes about this act of foot washing, and we'll use those to prompt us into those features that remain. First of all, the washing of feet, I suspect, was far more strongly appreciated then than likely it is now. You and I now have concrete sidewalks and pavement on which we walk, and we have nice carpeted houses, and we wear shoes to protect our feet, but then... By and large, individuals either went barefoot or they wore open sandals. And so as you'd walk through the dusty streets of town, as you walked around your own house or at least the places around which you owned, your feet over the course of a small amount of time would become very dirty, covered with dust, covered with the features that might even be representative of mud. And so at that time, a very common activity of hospitality, when a guest came to your house, you made available to them a basin so they could wash their feet. Jesus said that in John 7, 44. As He came into the house of a person, in that case a Pharisee, a discussion ensued at one point and Jesus said, You didn't even give me a basin whereby I could wash my feet. Again, that was a common act of hospitality in that day to make available the opportunity to clean one's feet as you entered into the house of a person you were visiting. It might also be with that we could notice near the bottom of that slide the following. Doesn't this take on a, an extreme appreciation? You and I then think perhaps those individuals who were wealthy enough to have slaves or servants, you would give that job to a servant. You would perhaps tell one of your slaves, would you make sure to either wash or make available the water to wash the, the feet of my guest? And yet in the very presence of these apostles, 
The Lord didn't ask a servant to do this. That is to say, another servant, He did it. And yet, He's the ruler of this universe. He is the absolute creator. We're told in a number of verses, such as John 1, verses 1 and following, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And that Word in verse 14 is identified, that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That Word is Jesus Christ. He was with God in the beginning, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Colossians 1.16, He is identified as the very one who not only created it, but it was in fact upheld for Him and by Him. This entire universe is sustained by the grandeur, the greatness and power of Christ Jesus our Lord. And yet He stooped to wash the feet of others. Let's add to that the following. Isn't it true He literally was deserving of all the homage all the reverence, all the worship, all the adoration, all the praise, all the exaltation that the mind of man by virtue of words was able to express. And yet he divested himself of all of that on this single occasion at least, and he in humbleness of mind proceeded to wash their feet. What a spectacle that must have been. I suppose your reaction and mine would likely have not been much different than Peter's. Lord, you'll never wash my feet. We would have had too much respect for him for that. We would have adored him too much for that. Isn't it true we reverence him? And that's rightful. There isn't anything inappropriate about that because he's great. But yet on this occasion, he wanted them to never, ever forget that there's something about being a servant of Jesus Christ. There's something about humility of mind and lowliness of heart. There's something about the servant attitude that goes along with it. One last thought. This lowly task that he performed, something that he washed their feet. Now that washing of feet brings us to the next part, I suppose, of our lesson tonight in which we could immediately address that thing we've already raised. Given that the Lord, of course, instituted the Lord's Supper, and we have faithfully maintained that now for 2,000 years, why don't we maintain foot washing as a part of worship? Are there clues in this that would help us readily understand not only what the Master was doing, but the way He intended this to be understood? It seems the overwhelming answer is yes. In fact, the Lord never intended foot washing to be a part of public worship. He never intended this particular act He was now doing to be regarded on equal footing in worship, let's say, to the Lord's Supper, or to prayer, or to singing, or the other attributes that you and I recognize as revealed in the wonderful Word of God. Look at some of these thoughts with me. Again, Jesus said in verse number 7, What I do thou knowest not now. But let's face it, they knew exactly what He was doing. He was washing their feet. But notice, he, he here told them, you don't understand what I'm doing now. Isn't it clear that what the Lord had in mind was a lesson far greater and more profound than the literal act that was in accordance to what they were seeing? 
Look at verse 12. Ye know, know ye what I have done to you? You and I, of course, in one sense, must appreciate this. They were able to hear the intonation of his voice. They were able to see his facial expression as he asked them this. May I again say they knew exactly what he literally was doing washing feet. But clearly those two statements and thoughts alone indicate that the lesson he wanted them to learn was much richer than that. Look at the next thought in verse 10. The Lord made this observation. He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet. Jesus said the person that's washed in the way I'm talking about doesn't need his feet washed. He's clean in a grander, deeper, greater way. Look at the next thought, verse 16. Verily, verily, I say unto you, that double usage of the word verily, as Jesus often utilized, it was an emphasis on truly, truly an unforgettable matter that they were to impress upon themselves and utilize. And may we now say this, whatever the profoundness and the lesson was, is one you and I still need to understand. And it had nothing to do with using foot washing as a part of worship. One last thought. As you and I turn to the book of Acts, aren't we blessed with the reality that those apostles that were superintended by the Holy Spirit, in John 16 they were told, in verse 13, you will be led into all truth, and yet as you and I turn to the book of Acts, with the records given of the worship of the first century church, there's not a single record of foot washing as a part of public worship. We notice they prayed and preaching took place and the observance of the Lord's Supper occurred. And we notice they gave as they'd been prospered. All those others are there in abundance. Isn't that another evidence that the Lord never intended foot washing to be a part of public worship? But the lesson that He etched on their heart that night, the example that He gave to them, was one that they no doubt often remembered because we see it exemplified in principle in the lives of men like Peter and James and John and others who we read about later in the New Testament who themselves were motivated by the same mentality that Jesus exemplified that night. No wonder then as you and I come to the bottom, why don't we see what the lesson was? What was the teaching that Jesus intended for them to remember? May I say, it's back to the title of the lesson, Humbleness of Mind. Let's develop it like this. There were two things that the Lord put before them that night by this act that He accomplished. Though He literally washed their feet, look at this. Humility before God. Humility before God. May I call to your attention again the wording of verse 16. The servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. Now that's a maxim that none of us would disagree with. The servant is not greater than his Lord. The Lord directs, instructs, guides. The particular Lord of that circumstance is the one who gives the admonition and the direction. And so the servant is not greater than his Lord. And yet Jesus says, look what I've done tonight. 
I have played the role in humbleness of mind of behaving in a way into where I lowly did that which many would consider to be beneath me. But yet I have done it to illustrate the vitality and needfulness of always being humble, first and foremost before God. Let's develop that then like this. In Daniel chapter 4, we have an Old Testament memorable episode in which that very truth is presented. Nebuchadnezzar was the reigning monarch of ancient Babylon. A man strong and powerful and mighty, and in fact he gave the orders and others in the proverbial stay. They simply said, how high do we jump? You see, he was the ruling man. We read in that book of Daniel about the grandeur and the greatness of his kingdom and how he estimated himself higher than what he should. In fact, when mention was made of God, Nebuchadnezzar didn't have much interest in humbling himself before God. He felt God ought to humble himself before Nebuchadnezzar. However, a dream was had. That was in the day and time when, of course, dreams often carried messages from the great beyond, from the very messages of the halls of heaven itself. Nebuchadnezzar saw in that dream, there was a great tree. Oh, it was a gigantic tree. And there were so many who enjoyed the pleasantness of its shade. But in the dream, it was cut down. Only the stump was left. That dream greatly troubled him, and he wondered, what does this mean? Daniel ultimately was called, and he revealed what that meant. And you and I well remember, Nebuchadnezzar, you are that tree. You're that tree. God has given you a great opportunity, and yet you've ignored Him. You've neglected Him. You've elevated yourself above Him, and you have not been humble. And God's going to cut that tree down, and you're going to live like an animal for seven years. And we remember, here was the great man, Nebuchadnezzar. And sure enough, the time came that his mind left him, his reason left him. He lived like an animal of the field for seven years. Hair grew over his body. His fingernails grew out like claws. He lived like a beast of the field. May we never forget what an object lesson. We ought never to elevate ourselves above God, but always in humility. To simply, like Paul, say, What wilt thou have me to do? There's no task too great nor small if by your commandment I'll try it. Surely, that statement of Acts 9 6 reminds us of that interesting statement from the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 6, verse 8, we sometimes sing a song patterned after that statement Here am I, Lord, send me. God had just challenged Isaiah with the reality and the truthfulness that my word needs to be spread and the message of truth to be carried. And Isaiah was overwhelmed by the majesty of the moment. Here am I, Lord. Send me. Is that your attitude and mine? Are we in a position to bow in humility before the God of heaven and to simply strive to be a servant? Why don't we look at this next thought? In Matthew 18, verses 2 through 4, there was an instance in which Jesus brought some children and used them to say, Except you're converted and become as little children, you shall in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. But isn't it so that a child is so often 
at least before they grow and perhaps are then suffering beneath the load of arrogance and pride, they so often exhibit a meekness and a humility. If dad or mom says to Sue do something, a child will try with all his might to do it because they want to make dad or mom proud of them and they want to grow up and to be what they want them to be. But yet we're taught in a passage like this one that we too must in humility Look at the next thought with me. Some of the things that, of course, are done in the name of religion are more noteworthy than others. Maybe that man that leads the singing or that man that leads us in prayer or that person that happens to be in the pulpit preaching a lesson, they truly are more noticeable, no doubt about that. But it does not mean that their work is more important than others. Isn't it true that Jesus on one occasion said, If only you give a cup of cold water in my name, you shall in no wise lose your reward. Matthew chapter 10, verse 37 to 42. To give merely a cup of cold water, maybe that goes unnoticed by everybody except the one who received the water. But God noticed. The Lord noticed. And the reward that goes with that will truly be something sweet and special. Are you and I willing then to humble ourselves and to do things like what might be taught in passages that we find in the New Testament? You'll notice in 1 John 5, verse number 3, when you and I think about the work of the church today, many things, of course, that we realize could be helpful and needful. Am I willing to do it? What if the church steps need swept? Am I willing to do that? What if one is in need of some other activity, maybe something like rearranging a room, helping to clean something? Is that beneath me? If I feel that way, maybe I should rethink. If my Lord was willing to wash the feet of His apostles, feet that might not have smelt good, feet that might have been pretty dirty, Feet that might even have been somewhat muddy. I don't know what the weather was like then. This much we know, the Lord didn't resist it. Whatever the task that might be put before us for the pursuit of the kingdom of our Lord, you and I ought to have a willingness in the service of others to have the mind of Christ like He did here. As you and I close that slide, I would call to your attention the sweetness of that reward that so often attaches to this kind of service with others. In James 4, verses 6 and 10, as well as 1 Peter, we find these particular statements, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. May I submit that this discussion of humility and humbleness of mind maybe brings us to another facet, though. For that one was a focus on, of course, serving God in humility. What about serving others? We've hinted at that at least in one regard, but could we begin here? Jesus said in verse 13, Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. He really was the Messiah. He was the Son of God, and in a few hours He was going to be nailed on a cross for them. I wonder how often in the days that were ahead did they remember the events of this night. 
If he was willing to wash my feet, could I not endure a little difficulty and persecution and hardship for him? If he was willing to stoop to the point of washing my feet, could I not stoop to the point of in humility assisting a brother or sister in Christ along the difficult way of this life? I think about John, who was banished to the Isle of Patmos in Revelation 1. If my Savior washed my feet that way, could I not endure this for Him? I think about Peter, who himself had, of course, been present on the Mount of Transfiguration. He'd seen the greatness of Christ and the transfigured one. And, of course, here he remembers the same one is now washing his feet. Later in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter would hallmark to the fact we were eyewitnesses of His majesty, but Peter was also an eyewitness of His humility. Do others see humility in you and me? Or do they see a prideful arrogance that really is a more resistant thing, a kind of attitude that says, I'm a little better than you? If that's true, we need to work on that. Because Jesus was humble enough to say, what you've seen me do tonight, you need to, in principle, be willing to do that to others. As we develop that further, I realize that this kind of idea is one that's a constant problem because our society doesn't seemingly pursue this. Society is about making a name for yourself. It's about gaining prestige and notoriety. It's about, in fact, doing and putting yourself in some position of influence and power. Christ Jesus has blessed many of us in that way into which there are others who are able to look upon what we've attained in the secular workplace or in the community or otherwise, but may we never allow that to make us aloof to the point that we are arrogant and unwilling to play the role of a servant. If someone is hungry... Are you and I in a position like Matthew 25 would tell us? Jesus said, I was hungry and you came to me. You fed me. Are you and I willing to do that? I was in prison. You visited me. Are we willing to do this? I was naked. You clothed me. We appreciate the blessed beauty of benevolence, but sometimes you and I maybe individually are aware of ways in which we can play the role of the servant of Jesus Christ by proverbially washing feet. Again, not literally, but serving them in the way that is their need. The way that would at least set before them the reality of there's one in heaven who loves them and wants them to be saved. No wonder in light of those things, we come near the bottom of that slide and we recall things like Luke twenty-two twenty-four and Romans twelve sixteen. As Paul highlighted that second case at least, he said, don't be condescending to high estate. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? But rather in lowliness of mind. There again is a phrase reminiscent of our title of the lesson, humbleness of mind. Aren't you thankful that God has given us teachings about a servant heart? Being those who are ready if it's the needful thing to wash feet, to do the things that are needful for the service of Jesus Christ and the life of another. Surely, as you, we close that slide, we notice that there are many problems that can result when we, shall we say, are not humble.
because we feel too good to do something or that's beneath what we would prefer to do. We ought to be mindful and very careful of the danger that presents because God, remember through the nature of Christ, has called us to be a servant. Jesus said in Mark 10 verses 44 and 45, He said, I came to give my life a ransom for many. I came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give my life. In many ways, that could be a slogan representative of you and me. We came not for everybody to serve us. As Christians, we came to be the servant for Christ to others. I hope again as you think about what He did that night, I can't help but wonder about the day of Pentecost and the days that followed. No wonder Peter was so energized to speak about this very Christ who truly was King of kings and Lord of lords, but yet he divested himself of that in the interest of serving the human family. He came to share the blessed message of redemption through the shedding of his own blood. In John 10, 17, he said, I lay down my life. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. He voluntarily gave his life. Oh, I know the Roman soldiers and others nail, put the nails in him, but he could have come down from that cross if he'd wanted to. Do you not know, he told Peter, I can now call legions of angels. But Peter put up his sword. To the cross, the Lord was going. But look what he had done just a few hours before. Servant of all. Are you and I of a servant mentality? We come to the impressive conclusion to the lesson. It's impressive because of what the Lord did, not because of anything you or I might say about it, but what He did that night. You and I are admonished then to have humbleness of mind. I mentioned before, doesn't that make you think about Paul who, if, who himself said, to those that are without law, I came without law that I might win them that are without law. To those under the law, I became as under the law that I might win them that are under the law. To summarize, I've become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. 1 Corinthians 9, 20-22. If Paul felt that way, shouldn't we? ready to serve the Lord in whatever way He might request and ask of us and they might further His kingdom. This very night, if there's anyone who is not a faithful member of the body of Christ, remember what He did that night. Those who are a part of His kingdom and His body are those who lovingly look forward to using their talents, their abilities, their time for the presentation and service to His kingdom. They do so thrillingly, not expecting physical reward, for they know... If the Lord seeth, He's going to reward you, reward you openly. Matthew 6, verses 1 and following. This very night, if we could be of assistance to anybody in your response to the gospel, if you're an alien sinner, that is one that's never become a Christian, don't you want to come and be a servant of one who is willing to wash the feet of another? As great as He is, He wants what's best for you. That means to be saved and to be forgiven of sin and to live faithful to His cause. You need to believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name and be baptized. If you become His child, but you perhaps have forgotten about the servant mentality, 
Why don't you come back to your first love if that's a needful thing? We would be delighted to pray to God on your behalf. We'd be delighted to beseech Him to fill your heart and life with that mentality so that you can use your skills and your capabilities in a way to serve Him best. Tonight, if we could be of assistance in any of these ways, we'd implore you to come. But even more notably, Jesus does. And to do so with urgency while together we stand and while we sing.